Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. We've had a little detour from the Gospel of Luke. We spent a couple weeks unpacking the doctrine of Revelation, and then I uploaded a sermon that I had preached on John chapter 5. That was last week, because honestly, last week I was on vacation. So just as a quick reminder, Luke chapter 8 was largely about the Word of God. We saw that with both the parable of the sower and some of the things the Word of God accomplishes in the life of the believer. Luke chapter 8 had a clear theme. Luke chapter 9 also has a theme, and that's what we're going to get into today. So to me, a lot of this chapter focuses on the question, and it's a super important question. Are you ready? The question is, who is Jesus? So with that question in mind, let's go ahead and dive in to verse 1. Quote, And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure all diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. End quote. So chapter 9 opens up with Jesus sending out his disciples to preach the gospel, to heal diseases, to cast out demons. And as they're going to a bunch of towns, the word about Jesus is spreading like crazy. But on a side note, can you imagine sitting in that room and Jesus is like, all right, guys, you're going to take nothing with you. And you're going to be able to cast out demons. You're going to be able to cure all the stuff you've seen me cure in my ministry. You're going to do what you've seen me do. Now, I feel like I would have questions, right? A lot of questions like, what does one say when one casts out a demon? What about curing a leper? What do you say there? Leprosy be gone? Is there a different process from curing the blind or the deaf or some other illness? What do we say when we enter a house? God sent me? Maybe they did have questions. Maybe they were some of the questions I just listed out. Maybe they were other questions. But all we get here is that they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And that's really the main way these verses fit into the rest of the chapter. You see, the disciples have gone out doing wonders by the power of God in the name of the Son of God, Jesus. And we know from the following verses, the ones I'm about to read, is that that word of these incredible things are getting around. And as it turns out, they're getting around to some pretty significant ears. Verse 7, quote, Now here the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. End quote. Now, I know there are a lot of Herods in the Bible. So let's clarify this Herod situation. 
The Herod in this passage is the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great is the guy who ordered the death of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. A really no good, very bad guy. He also had one of his sons killed because he was just suspicious of him. Herod the Great died of supposedly natural causes. Oddly enough, his symptoms were recorded in historical documents. And I found an article where modern medical professionals diagnosed him based off those documents. Now, due to it being a, shall we say, delicate diagnosis, I'm not going to say exactly what happened to him. But I will say that after reading that report, I am certain of this, that Herod the Great was under the judgment of God. Herod Antipas, this is the Tetrarch, this is the guy in the passage we're reading about today, he doesn't seem to be too different from his dad as far as like morality goes. It's speculated that he had one of his own sons drowned in his own pool. Why? He was suspicious of them. You see, suspicious characters often find themselves suspicious of other people. This is the Herod that had John the Baptist imprisoned. You know you know the story. He divorced his wife so he could marry his brother's wife while his brother was alive. And on his birthday, his new wife, you know, his formerly known as brother's wife, had a daughter and she danced for him and he enjoyed it so much he offered her whatever she wanted. And then her mom suggested that she ask for John the Baptist's head on the platter. Now listen, all of this is as gross and messed up as it sounds. These are not good people. But there is a third Herod as well, and that's Herod Agrippa. He shows up in the book of Acts. He acts violently towards the church. He kills James. He tries to kill Peter, but there's a thing about an angel intervening. The Bible says that Herod Agrippa was actually struck by an angel because he received worship as though he was God. He's then eaten by worms, but if you go and read that passage again, it's a little bit unclear. He may actually have been alive when the worms started chowing down. Really not clear. Agrippa is the nephew of Antipas, the guy in this story, and the grandson of Herod the Great. The Herods were terrible people. God cannot stand evil. So when powerful evil men like Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, are doing evil things, judgment can come. Now back to our passage at hand from the verses I just read just a moment ago about Herod being curious about Jesus. We're really going to get to my first point. Point number one, there are a lot of wrong ideas about Jesus. There are a lot of wrong ideas about Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch, or Antipas, he is perplexed about Jesus. He hears a lot of reports about who Jesus could be, and in large, the people in the area aren't quite sure what to make of Jesus either. I mean, who is Jesus? We see them put forth three theories. The first theory was that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. The second theory is that Elijah, you know, the guy that was caught up, chariots of fire, went up in a whirlwind, Second Kings chapter 2, that famous Old Testament prophet, they thought maybe Elijah had come back. The third theory is that one of the prophets of old from the Old Testament had risen from the dead. So think like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel had been raised from the dead. Now these theories have a lot in common. For one, all three theories are 100% wrong. 
Jesus is not John the Baptist. Jesus is not Elijah. Jesus is not one of the prophets of old. The second thing they have in common is that they all show that the people understood Jesus as someone significant. Now, they consider John the Baptist to be a prophet. Elijah was one of the biggest prophets of all time, and the prophets of old were all big deals to Jews of this day. So they understood that Jesus, whoever he was, and that was still a mystery, but whoever he was, was someone significant. Now, point number three, really to push that further, they're believing that either a resurrection happened, so either John the Baptist or one of the Old Testament prophets had been raised from the dead, or Elijah had returned from heaven. So they know he's just not your average run-of-the-mill prophet. They know something supernatural is going on with this man, Jesus Christ. They know that he's not your normal rabbi, not your normal teacher, not even your normal prophet. He is someone carrying some supernatural power. Maybe one of these possibilities satisfied Herod. We, We really don't know. But what we do know is that these theories about Jesus were really widespread. Look at verse 18. Quote, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. End quote. So here Jesus asks his disciples who people think that he is. How do they answer? Who is Jesus? Notice the theories that they put forth. John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Elijah had returned from heaven. One of the prophets of old has been raised from the dead. People told the disciples exactly what they told Herod. So what we have here are some common and wrong beliefs about who Jesus is. They're widespread. They're all over the place, which shows us that just because the majority believes something doesn't mean it's right. Everyone can be wrong. The majority can be wrong. Now look, there is a lot in life we can be wrong about. Every single NFL offseason, the Chicago Bears think it's going to be their year when their team takes a big step. Sadly for those fans, they're wrong every single year. But whether Chicago Bears are going to be good or not is a pretty harmless thing to be wrong about, right? But when it comes to Jesus... We've got to have the right answer. He's not just a great teacher or a prophet. He is someone so much more. You might even say infinitely more significant. That leads me to my second point. The Father reveals the true identity of Jesus. The Father reveals the true identity of Jesus. Let's read verse 20. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. End quote. When Peter says, You're the Christ of God, he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who the Father has anointed to save his people from their sins. Matthew 16, verse 17, adds a really interesting detail. It says, quote, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, end quote. 
Jesus is telling Peter that while he was right, he was not right because he's smart. He was not right because he figured everything out. He's not right because he somehow put the puzzle pieces together, solved all the clues, and figured out the mystery. Peter is right about who Jesus is because the Father has revealed this to him. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's a savior. That means he outranks every other prophet. He is who the prophets of old pointed to. He came to give us a path to salvation, a path to God. Jesus isn't just calling out our sin, though he certainly does that. He's providing a way for our sin to be dealt with, for us to be saved, which is only through him, the God-man Jesus Christ. Peter's answer was right, but it wasn't yet complete. Jesus is the Christ of God. But the Father was not done revealing to Peter, revealing to the disciples, really revealing to all of us who Jesus is. He is the Christ, but he's more than the Christ. Let's look at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, Two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him." There is so much going on in these verses. I mean, for Peter and James and John, this started out normal, right? Going up on a mountain to pray was routine for these guys. But then something very non-routine happened. I mean, can you imagine one minute praying like normal, just on the mountain, taking it easy, lifting up prayers to the Father? The disciples are trying to stay awake, but we know that Jesus had some stamina when it came to prayer. And he would pray, he would spend so much time with the Father because he loved the Father and the Father loves him so much that the disciples would not be able to hang and they would fall asleep while Jesus was praying. That happens here. And your mind might go to a certain night in a certain garden when that will happen again. When the disciples are fighting off the sleep, Jesus looks like he always does, like a normal guy. Clothes probably a bit worn, a bit dirty, because he once said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then before they know it, before they even know anything happened, Jesus is glowing a dazzling white. Or as Matthew puts it in his gospel, he is white as light. Or as Mark says, radiant, intensely white. Then all of a sudden, the two men appear in glory. No, they're not angels, but they are Old Testament giants to the Jews, Elijah and Moses. Now, in Elijah and Moses, we see a representation of all of the Old Testament. Like, they would often refer to the Old Testament as the Law and Prophets. Now, you have Moses, who is the man who God used to deliver the law, representing the law. And then you have Elijah, who was a prophet and perhaps the most famous of all the prophets in the Old Testament. So you have two men who are giants to the Jews, but also fully representative of the Old Testament, as if to say everything was leading to the God-man Jesus Christ. 
Now look, now I know we live in a world where we have endless movies and endless TV shows that use computer-generated imagery to make the impossible stuff seem normal and appear on our TVs every single day, right? Like Star Wars. Think, think about Star Wars for a minute, all right? We have a series of movies and, and shows, or shows about it now. We have a series of movies and shows about space wizards that fight with laser sticks as they fly in their spaceships as light speed with their talking robot and alien buddies. Yet we say that seems normal. There ain't nothing normal about space wizards fighting with laser sticks, hanging out with robots and aliens. No, not at all. But I I think this lens of make-believe that we have in our entertainment may desensitize us to what is truly glorious and what is truly beautiful and what is truly real. I mean, picture what this must have been like to the men who knew nothing of special effects. They've never seen Star Wars or a Marvel movie or anything else like that. But now what they are seeing is two men who have supposed to have been dead a long, long time in Jesus, who's now shining white as light. They are witnessing Jesus transform before their very eyes. We really see how dumbstruck the apostles were, and I'm not throwing shade, I would be worse than they were, with what happens next. Here we go, verse 33, quote, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, end quote. Mark 9, 6 adds, quote, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, end quote. Peter knew something incredible was happening. He just didn't know what it was. He couldn't put all the puzzle pieces together, but could you really blame him? I mean, my goodness, who could put the puzzle pieces together in this moment? He didn't know what to say. And I love the fact that even though he had no idea what was happening, he had no idea what to say, even though he was terrified, that did not stop him for one second from opening his mouth and saying stuff. He sees Jesus in a glorious state. He sees Moses and Elijah, who are no doubt looking glorious themselves. And Peter's mistake is that he kind of gets wrapped up in this moment. You see, Peter's mistake is that he seems to think Jesus is on par with Moses and Elijah. Like Jesus is somehow in the line of heroes of old, like Moses and Elijah were. Instead, what Peter doesn't understand is that Jesus is the point of the program. That Moses pointed to Jesus. That Elijah pointed to Jesus. That everyone else in the Old Testament was pointing to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, while Peter is speaking totally without knowledge, he's interrupted. The Father is going to clear this up real fast. Here we go. Verse 34 and 35, quote, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him, end quote. So Peter's talking about what he doesn't understand, and the Father brings this cloud down, and from the cloud booms with a voice, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The father was revealing a second part of the identity of Jesus that we see in this passage. He is the Christ, but he is also the son of God. 
He is the Savior, and He is the Divine. He is the Messiah, and He is God, and that changes everything. It means He's not just a good teacher that can give us some helpful advice. He's not just an influencer that can talk us into things. He's not just a celebrity that we can be a casual fan of. He's not just a life coach that can make us improve some aspect of our life to be more successful. No, He is the Son of God. Since He is the only Savior and He is the only God, He is worth infinitely more than everything else in this universe. He is not someone for us to mold to our taste and preferences. He is the one who molds us. You see, J.D. Greer calls out this sinful desire of us trying to mold God in his book, Not God Enough. Quote, We prefer a God who is small and domesticated, who thinks like we think, likes what we like, and whom we can manage, predict, and control. End quote. Y'all, that ain't Jesus. He's too big. He is too awesome to be controlled. If God spoke the universe into existence, He's too big for us to manipulate or mold into our image. There's going to be things where you disagree with Him, where you disagree what He reveals to us in His Word. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, He is God. You are not. We do not get to define Him. He's already told us exactly who He is. Listen, Jesus does want a personal relationship with you, but that does not mean you get a personalized Jesus. If you want to call on the name of Jesus, if you want to make Him the Lord of your life, then you're going after the real Jesus, the only Jesus, the only one that has the power to save and to transform. I know it's tempting To say, Jesus, I'll follow you in certain areas of my life, but not others. It's like if your life was a house. And you know houses, they have different rooms for different things. Different things go on in the living room, then the bathroom, then the kitchen, then the bedroom. They have different purposes. It's almost as if, Lord, you can have the living room, you can have the bedroom, the kitchen, the bathroom, but there's this this closet over here. Lord, that's mine. I need you to stay out of it. To say, Lord, I I give you 90%, but this other 10% is off limits. It's mine. I'm going to decide what goes with that. If that's our mindset, then we're not calling him Lord. If we're saying, Lord, I'll follow 50%, 70%, 90%, even 99% of what you say, but I'm going to hold over to some other things that I believe trump that, we're not following him as Lord. You see, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he is worthy of being Lord over all of our life. Every room in the house, every closet, every nook, every cranny, every square foot, wherever you may find it, is owed to him. You see, this, this day on the mountain, it really stuck with Peter. And that, that might be an understatement. You see, Peter, knowing who Jesus really is, it did something to him. Now, if you fast forward in the life of Peter, about 30 years, Peter's going to be just a few months away from being executed. And even though he's a few months away from being executed, he wrote these powerful words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, quote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
End quote. Peter is saying, hey, this is not hearsay for us. We saw with our own eyes. We heard with our own ears. We saw the glory that was on him. We heard the Father's declaration over him. We know who Jesus is. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. Peter knew. Peter knew what he had seen. He knew what he had heard. He knew what he had experienced with Jesus. And that sent him to a life of following Jesus all the way to his death, answering the question, who is Jesus? Correctly is the most important question you could ever answer. It changed everything for Peter, and it can change everything for you. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.